Well, we have come to the end of our series in Mark's Gospel, so I hope that you have enjoyed binge-watching Jesus over the last year. It has been good for my soul to spend time in Mark's Gospel and to see Jesus in action and, and to be reminded again of how merciful He is and how kind and how compassionate to sinners like us and to see His love in action. So, honestly, I love Him more now as a result of being in Mark's Gospel. I feel like I went deeper in my understanding of Jesus, and now I love Him, and I enjoy Him more. What a Savior. I do want to let you know where we're headed in the next few weeks. As James just mentioned, he will be preaching next Sunday, December 23, and then Pastor Greg will be preaching December 30th, and then Lord willing, I'll be back in the pulpit on January 6th, and we will start our new series in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. So I'm an Old Testament major from seminary. I can't wait to get back into the Old Testament. As one uh, Old Testament professor was asked, uh, do you like the New Testament? He said, yeah, I like the New Testament. I've read it. It reminds me of the Old. And so that's how I feel about the New Testament. It reminds me of the Old Testament. Also, let me remind you, if you're interested in discipleship, I will be teaching a class on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. in the Education Building uh, beginning January 13th. If you want to know what it means to be a disciple, how to make disciple-making disciples, maybe you're a new believer and you don't know much about Christianity and you would like to know basic concepts like justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification, or maybe you want a refresher on that, please sign up at the Welcome Center or send me an email. Or maybe you're a seasoned believer and you want to disciple somebody in a one-on-one relationship, and that's one way of many to do discipleship. So you can come and find out that discipleship is more than one-on-one. But if you find yourself in a one-on-one relationship or you and a few people and you just don't know where to begin, come to this class and be trained and then you'll be able to go and do that. So sign up at the Welcome Center or send me an email, preferably by the end of today, so I can make sure we have enough books. Now, one final thing before we jump into Mark's Gospel. Look at your Bibles at Mark 16. You may notice that there is a break in your Bible at the end of verse 8. You'll probably see a footnote that mentions how verses 9 through 20 in Mark chapter 16 are not in the earliest Greek manuscripts of Mark. I believe that Mark, the original copy and gospel that he wrote, ends at verse 8. I think Mark intentionally ends his gospel abruptly, and I believe that verses 9 through 20 are not original. I believe those verses came much later. Therefore, I will end today at verse 8. Now, let me say something, and please listen up. Okay, everybody listen up. This, when you see that kind of footnote in that break there, this does not mean that God's Word is full of errors. It does not mean that God's Word is full of errors. The original Greek manuscripts inspired by the Holy Spirit are without error. But there are some discrepancies between the actual manuscripts that we have. And when there are discrepancies with the copies of the original manuscripts, it does not mean that the Bible that we have cannot be trusted. It does not mean that at all. The Bible that we have is God's Word, and it can be trusted with all of your heart. Let me say that again. 
The Bible that we have is God's Word, and it can be trusted. Most of our English Bibles, I say most because there could be some translation out there, but most of our English Bibles are an accurate translation of the original languages. So you, Christian, can trust every promise in this book. But there are some places all over both the Old and New Testaments where you will see footnotes at the bottom of your Bible that say some manuscripts do not contain this phrase or this verse, and so you have to wrestle with that and deal with that. So if you're interested in studying this more, please send me an email. I can send you some links. Email one of the other pastors. They can do that as well. Or you can go back and listen to Pastor James's sermon from October 1st, 2017, when he unofficially kicked off our series in Mark. His sermon was titled, Quit Wrangling Snakes and Go Help That Person Dangling from the Cliff. And in that sermon, James talks about the ending of Mark. Okay, Got all that out of the way. Now, turn to Mark chapter 15. Let's look at Mark's gospel because this is God's word. And it can be trusted. And we desperately need to listen to it. And what we'll see today in God's word is a truth that will be true for all God's children one day. Jesus will look you in the face and say, I love you. The late Jack Miller said this, Throughout eternity, Christ will be giving himself to us so that we might know the Father better and be filled with inexpressible joy. God will look us in the face and say, I love you. The Father will put his warm arms and heart around us. That's our God. That's his radiant love. And that's our inheritance forever. That's our inheritance as Christians, as God's adopted children. One day, God will put his warm arms and heart around us. Jesus will look each one of us in the face and tell us that he loves us. His radiant love is our inheritance forever. His radiant love is our inheritance forever. And it's all a reality because Jesus is cold dead body was placed in a tomb. So look at verse 42, Mark chapter 15, and hear the word of the Lord. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So after Jesus died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea moved quickly to get Pilate's permission to bury Jesus. Mark tells us here that it was the day of preparation, which means it was Friday afternoon or early Friday evening. 
The Sabbath started on Friday evening at sundown and went to Saturday evening at sundown. And so Jews would prepare everything beforehand on Friday night so they would not be guilty of doing any work on the Sabbath on Saturday. And so Joseph realizes we need to do something with the body of Jesus because it's about to be dark and we can't leave him hanging on the cross. And so I need to do something and I need to take his body and I'm going to ask Pilate for it so I can take it and put it into a boom. A Boom, put it into a tomb, and then we can prepare him for burial Saturday evening or early Sunday morning. So Pilate gives Joseph permission to take Jesus' body. Pilate uh, allowed Joseph to do this, so Joseph wraps Jesus' body up in a linen shroud and then places it in a grave, which was really like a small cave. Then, to keep anyone from messing with Jesus' body, Joseph rolled a large stone in front of the cave, and Mark tells us that two Marys... Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, which might be Jesus' own mother, saw where Joseph had laid Jesus. And so we have Jesus' body, which was placed in a body bag, if you will, and then carried to and then placed in a tomb. But another part of Jesus is somewhere else. Jesus' body was placed in a grave, but part of Jesus is somewhere else. His spirit or soul went somewhere else. Jesus' spirit immediately went to heaven when he died. Just like Jesus told the thief on the cross who had believed in him in Luke chapter 23. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus and the thief on the cross immediately went to heaven when they died. Or to be more accurate, part of each of them went to heaven when they died, and then part of them stayed behind. Their spirits went to heaven, and their bodies went into the grave. Remember, what did Joseph ask Pilate for? He asked for Jesus' body. And if you would have been there that day, and you were friends with Joseph, and Joseph would have asked you to help him carry the body, what would Joseph say to you? He'd say, hey, bro, can you help me carry Jesus? Joseph would not have said, hey, bro, can you help me carry this earth suit that Jesus lived in for 33 years? He's kind of heavy. No, Joseph would have asked you to help him carry Jesus to the tomb. Why? Because the body in the body bag is Jesus. And if you were the thief on the cross and you opened your spiritual eyes and you were in paradise or heaven and you saw Jesus, you would say, hey, Jesus, it's you. Wow. Why? Because Jesus' spirit that you interacted with in heaven is Jesus too. And so how can this be? How can Jesus be both in heaven after his death and in the arms of Joseph being transported in a body bag to the tomb? How can that be? Well, here's why. Because human beings are made up of two parts. One part material and one part immaterial. Our body is the material physical part, the flesh, the blood, the bone. And our immaterial part is our spirit or our soul, if you prefer that word. But we are both. Human beings are made up of two parts, material and immaterial, body and spirits. Our bodies are not merely an earth suit, as some Christians say. That's pagan. 
That's how the Gnostics in the early church believed. That's dualism. No, God made you with all of your hair and your fingernails and your toes and your teeth and your tongues. Your body is not an earth suit. Your body is you. And just like every human being born into this world, Jesus was made up of two parts as well because he was fully human. Jesus had a body and Jesus had a spirit. And the body in the body bag that Joseph of Arimathea was carrying was Jesus. Why? Because salvation isn't merely spiritual. Salvation is physical too. Salvation is very physical. And when God began the process of salvation with you, he wasn't just interested in the spiritual. God wasn't just interested in saving your soul. Jesus wasn't just interested in saving the thief's soul. Jesus came to restore creation, and that includes your body as well. Jesus didn't just come to save your soul. He came to save your body as well. He came to save all of you, body and spirit. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What did Paul say? The redemption of what? Our bodies. Not merely the salvation of your spirit, not merely the salvation of your soul, but the redemption of your body. In this hope, Paul says what? We were what? Saved. That means that salvation is not complete until you are resurrected and standing on the new earth. Your salvation is not complete until you have been resurrected from the dead and you are standing on the new earth. Salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is about the coming together again of your spirit and your body in resurrection. Salvation is about the redemption of your body, not just your spirit or soul. And so you, me... Your loved one who has gone on to be with the Lord, we are not fully saved until the resurrection. Now, I don't mean that you're not saved as a Christian, because you are saved, Christian. Right now, you are saved. When someone repents and trusts in Jesus, they are saved forever from the wrath of God. That happens at regeneration, justification, when you are declared righteous. But the Bible also says that we are being saved. That's called sanctification. And we will be saved finally and fully and completely one day, and that's called glorification. And if you want to know more about those terms, then sign up for the discipleship class that I'll be teaching in January. We're going to talk about these things. But we are not fully and finally and completely saved until we are resurrected. Therefore, our bodies are not merely an earth suit as some Christians say. That's actually pagan. It's a Gnostic understanding 
of salvation. No, God made you with all of your hair that doesn't do what you want it to do because it's curly and you want it straight or it's straight and you want it curly. He made you with your toes that you don't like and your teeth and your tongue, everything. Your body is not in our suit. Your body is you, made by God the way he wanted to make you. Salvation is very physical. Look at the creation account in Genesis. It's very physical. God reaches down into what? Into the dirt and makes man. God rolls up his sleeves in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And he became a living being. God rolls up his sleeves in Genesis 2, 7. And he gets his hands dirty with mud as he makes Adam. He reaches down into the ground, grabs a handful of dirt, and he fashions Adam, and then he breathes life or spirit, the immaterial part, into Adam. So when God made Adam, he got dirt under his fingernails, if you will. And he does the same thing when he makes Eve, Adam's wife, the first woman. At least gets his hands bloody, maybe. He reached in and grabbed a rib and fashioned her. It's very physical. Therefore, value your body. Value the indoor plumbing that God gave you, your intestines and your stomach, that they do what they're supposed to do when you eat. Value your nose and your eyes and your ears. Value your body because Jesus values your body. And Jesus has plans to come again in his final advent. And when he does, he plans on resurrecting your body. When Jesus walked out of the grave here in Mark chapter 16, he was thinking about how one day he will hold your hand and walk with you out of the grave. At Jesus' final advent, he plans on raising your body from the dust. He's got a date on his calendar, which hangs in his kitchen, and he plans on raising you up out of the grave, even if you're covered with cobwebs and spiders or crawling in and out of your nostrils and eyes. Jesus wants your body. He wants that body with cobwebs on it and spiders crawling in and out of every orifice because he has plans for it. Resurrection. Jesus has plans for your body. It's resurrection. That's exactly what we'll see in the next chapter of Mark. So look now at Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so early Sunday morning, the two Marys 
and Salome brought spices that they might anoint the body of Jesus for burial. And it's possible that this is Jesus' mother. Scholars debate on it, but just think about it. If you're Jesus' mother and he has died, you're going to go anoint his body and you show up and it's like, your baby boy's not here, he's alive. Man. And as they're on their way to the tomb, they're wondering, how in the world are we going to be able to push that rock out of the way? And they look up and the stone was already rolled back. And so they enter the tomb and they're alarmed to see an angel just sitting there, probably on his iPhone, killing time, waiting for them to show up. And the angel told them not to be alarmed because Jesus had come back from the dead. And then the angel told them to go tell Peter and the rest of the disciples to go back home to Galilee and Jesus would meet them there and they would see him again. The angel wants them to know that Jesus was very much alive. His body was gone from the tomb, which means that resurrection is physical. If resurrection was merely spiritual, then the body of Jesus would still be there. And the angel would have told these ladies that Jesus would appear to them like a force ghost on Star Wars, kind of like when Obi-Wan appears to Luke Skywalker. If resurrection is not physical, the angel just said, go to Galilee, and then the way that Obi-Wan appeared to Luke Skywalker, that's how Jesus is going to appear to you. But he doesn't. He says, he's not here. You will see him in Galilee. The fact that Jesus' body is not there in the tomb and that the disciples later see Jesus physically proves that the resurrection is physical. It shows us that Jesus' spirit had reunited with his body again. The resurrection of Jesus is very physical. Why? Why is the resurrection of Jesus physical? Because Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul talks about in Romans 5. Jesus came to do what Adam undid when Adam sinned in the garden. Jesus came to live the life that we could never live because we're sinners. And Jesus came to die the death that we all deserve because we're sinners. He died in our place for our sins. He took the blame for our sins. That's why resurrection is physical. Because it restores and fixes what Adam broke. Resurrection is the dawn of a new era. New creation. Bursting through death out of the grave, Jesus overturned what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. The tomb became the womb of the new creation. The tomb became the womb of the new creation where Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, emerged victorious. Now, notice the setting. Jesus comes back from the dead. Where? In a garden. John tells us in his gospel that the tomb was located in a garden. John chapter 19. So your ears are supposed to perk up and say, wait a minute. This happened in a garden? Something else very significant happened in a garden. Jesus walked out in the garden in the cool of Easter morning. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, when Adam ruined the world, God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. But on Easter, after Jesus was vindicated, he emerged from the tomb and he walked victorious in the garden in the cool of the morning, totally reversing what Adam undid. So Jesus walks in the garden as the new Adam. 
He came out of the ground in a garden, just like Adam. But Jesus emerged from the ground victorious. In Genesis 2, 7, Adam was made from the ground in a garden. Adam came out of the dust, out of the ground in a garden. So to be a human being is to be out of the dust or out of the ground. Therefore, the appropriate relationship between human beings and dirt is that we come out of the dirt. That's our relationship with the dirt, is that we come out of you and we rule over you. We come out of the dust so we can put, be put over the earth and rule and have dominion over the ground, just like Adam did before he sinned. That's God's design. That was God's plan for Adam. Humans come out of the ground and we rule over it. Out of dirt, ruling over all of creation and having dominion. That's what Adam was supposed to be doing in the garden. He was supposed to come out of dust and rule and have dominion over the earth, over the dust. And he did. I don't know how long, but he did until he sinned. But then Adam sinned and disobeyed God, and then death entered this world. And that's why when you and I die, we go somewhere. Where do we go? What happens in death? In death, part of you goes back into the ground. You go back into the dirt. And when you do that, you aren't living in a proper relationship with the ground. Hear those condemning words after the sin of of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.19. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But we were made to rule over the earth. Adam was made out of dirt to rule over the earth. We as human beings were made out of the dirt to rule over the earth. But death comes along and puts us out of relationship with the ground. Death comes along and puts us back where we do not belong. Death puts us back into the ground. And that's why the most perverted and twisted thing that can happen to a human being is death. Death is the most perverted and twisted and abnormal thing that can ever happen to a human being. Why? Because death separates you. Your spirit is yanked and separated from your body. Because death puts you back into the ground, out of proper relationship with the ground. Death takes you from having a position of dominion and ruling over the earth to a position of having the ground or the earth rule over you. But we weren't made as human beings to be under the ground. We were made to come out of the dirt and to rule over it. And so the million-dollar question is, how do we get restored to that proper relationship of ruling over the earth like Adam and Eve before the fall? And the answer is resurrection. Mark tells us here how we get restored. The angel tells us in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? We get restored to that proper relationship of ruling over the earth by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came out of the ground, and so will we. In the resurrection, we will be brought out of the dust again, and we will be restored to a proper relationship with the dust. 
we will rule and reign with Christ on the new earth. And the first time you see Jesus in your glorified body, with your glorified eyes, Jesus will look you in the face and say, I love you. So resurrection is Genesis 2-7 all over again. Jesus walking out of the tomb is Genesis 2-7 all over again. The second Adam leading the way. Resurrection is Genesis 2-7 all over again right here in Mark 16-7 when it says you will see him again. That's why the two Marys and Salome react the way they do at the end of Mark. Listen to verse 8 again. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They fled from the tomb trembling. They were afraid. They were astonished. They couldn't believe it. Why? Why do they react this way? Because they had never seen anyone walk out of a tomb before. All that they had ever known was that people experience the perversion of death. That's all they've ever known. All they had ever known was that they showed up at people's graves and they helped anoint their bodies for burial. Every time they went to anoint a body for burial with spices, the body was there and the person was dead. But here on Easter morning, the body is gone and the person is alive. This time, they showed up, and there's no body. And if that wasn't shocking enough, there was an angel sitting in the tomb, probably on his iPhone, and they were shocked, and we should be too. I think we're just too familiar with the idea of resurrection as Christians. I think the shock seems to have worn off. I mean, it is odd And it's weird and strange and bizarre, isn't it? Resurrection, I mean, coming back from the dead. That's odd and that's weird and that's strange and that's bizarre. But I'm afraid we Christians have gotten so used to the idea that it doesn't startle us anymore. Think about it. We believe that Jesus came back from the dead And we believe that we will come back from the dead one day. That's weird. Strange. Because I've never seen a resurrected person with my eyes. But I believe it. I absolutely believe it. Even if it sounds bizarre. Don't let resurrection become old hat to you. Marvel anew that you will be made new. Marvel anew this morning that you will be made new. Be astounded that you serve a God who raises dead people. Nobody else in the universe does that. The Bible's job description of God is that he brings people back from the dead. This is what God does. He loves bringing people back from the dead. Raising dead people is God's business and business is good. Don't ever let that truth bounce off of you. Be amazed. Be flabbergasted. And practically, here's why resurrection should never cease to amaze us. Because God is going to raise your body up from the dead and your spirit will be reunited with your body and then you will, you ready for this? You will never, ever, ever sin again. 
wow, I cannot wait for that day. You will never sin again. No more Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do, I do do. No more of that, no more do do. (laughs) And you'll never get weak or sick or die again. No failing eyes, no ears going bad, no aching bones. We were talking in the office, someone came in several weeks ago and talking about how our bodies are failing and our eyes are going bad and we're losing our hearing and our bones ache. And as we were talking, it dawned on me, my mouth is still going strong. My mouth has no problems. I never, I, mean, my, my, I might say, oh, I'm getting old, my back, or oh, my ears or my head, but I never say, oh, I'm getting old and my mouth just hurts. My mouth never aches. My mouth works perfectly. I just open it up and bad words come out and complaints and grumblings and gossip and slander, they just flow out of my mouth so easily. I yelled at my kids yesterday. Did anybody else yell at their kids yesterday? You're lying with your mouth. (laughs) My mouth never tires. My mouth never needs a nap. My mouth never aches. It just opens up and I prove over and over again that I am an idiot and that I am a sinner. I'm like Peter. Open mouth, insert foot. And that's probably why the angel here wanted these women to go and tell Peter that Jesus had come back from the dead. Go tell all the disciples and tell Peter. Why is Peter specifically singled out? Because Peter was always running his mouth. And the last time we saw him in Mark's gospel, he was cursing and denying his Lord. And I have a feeling that when Jesus saw Peter after the resurrection, Jesus looked him in the face and told him, I love you, Peter. I'm sure Jesus wanted to reassure Peter of his love because Peter had blown it so bad. So yeah, I'm like Peter. I can admit that my mouth works too well. I feel sorry for all of you because you have to put up with me. And I'm so sorry. I know I'm difficult to love. I know I'm not much to look at. But just hang on a little bit longer because there's a better version of me on the way. One day, those of you whose skin I get under, you'll actually want to hang out with me. On the new earth, people will line up to hang out with resurrected me. That's how glorious our new bodies will be. So just hang on a little longer, y'all, and there will be a new and better version of me, and Jesus' resurrection secures it told Heather before, if she can just hang on a little while longer, there's a better version of me coming. I promised her that the best version of me was all hers in heaven, and that's the hope that the gospel offers. So let me give you married people some hope this morning, because it's in the middle of Advent, and I'm sure you might be stressed out, and there may be strains on your marriage as well. Tim Keller says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. What then is marriage for? It is for helping. And if you're having marriage struggles and you're sitting there with your wife and you, or your, your husband and you came in you're a little frustrated with them this morning, listen, okay? If you're in a rough patch in your marriage and everybody gets there at some point, listen. Keller says this. What then is marriage for? 
It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon that husband and wife look toward is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Within this vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Jesus was carrying that truth in his back pocket when he walked out of the grave. There's hope for your marriage. And some of you are in a rough spot of your marriage. And who doesn't end up there sometime? For those of you in a rough patch, keep in mind that one day you will see your spouse in resurrected glory and you will be absolutely blown away. You will look your spouse in the face and say, I love you. So encourage one another with this truth. One day you will stand before God together and you will see each other in spotless beauty and glory. Why? Because Jesus went into the grave, and he walked out three days later. For all eternity, we will be amazed at what God did and what we will experience and enjoy on the new earth. We really have no category for it. We don't even really know what it means to be human because all we know is fallen humanity. We don't know humanity the way God designed it. We just catch glimpses of it here. It's going to be totally rad, It's going to be like a combination of some of these feelings that we have here on earth, like the combination of shooting the the game-winning three-pointer at the buzzer, that feeling of you shoot the game-winning three-pointer at the buzzer, or that climactic moment of intimacy that we share with our spouses, or the feeling of excitement that children have on Christmas Eve, or the joy of reuniting with a loved one that you haven't seen in a while. All of that, all of those feelings, all of the time. That's eternity with Jesus. That's resurrection. So Christianity is not about your spirit leaving your body when you die and then it's over. Christianity is about experiencing resurrection and living eternally on the new earth in a new, glorified, and very physical body. And the only way for that to come about is for the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to come to the earth, to take on human flesh, to live the way that Adam was supposed to live in the garden, and to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross to bring us back to God, and then to be put into the ground, and then to come out of the grave three days later. And so Jesus experienced death, the same separation of body and spirit that we will experience one day. Jesus experienced the most perverted thing that a human being could face. He had his soul ripped out of his body. He experienced the perversion of death for us. He died and his body was in the grave for three days while his spirit was with his Father in heaven. Death separated Jesus' spirit from his body, and death will separate our spirits from our bodies when we die. 
Death separates. That's what it does. It tears you apart. It rips you apart. And that's why death is the most perverted thing that you can ever experience. It's the most twisted, perverted, warped, distorted, corrupt, most abnormal thing that can ever happen to you. Why? Because death tears you apart. It rips you apart. It puts your spirit immaterial part over here and your body material part over here and you were not made to be chopped up like that. You were made to be part material, part immaterial, united together, part spirit, part body, united together to have these two parts together in unity. But some Christians won't experience this. That's why I said that death is the most perverted thing that can happen to you. Some Christians will be alive when Jesus returns at his final advent, which could be today. And they will experience glorification in an instant. They will not experience this being ripped apart, but the majority of humans get ripped into at death. The majority of humans experience the perversion of death. But the hope of Christianity is that believers in Jesus will be resurrected, spirit and body joined together again just the way God designed it with Adam and Eve. Jesus died. Jesus experienced the most perverted thing that can happen to a human being. He was separated. Part of him went into the ground. Joseph of Arimathea put him there. But Jesus walked out in victory and resurrection. And because of this, your sins are forgiven, Christian. God can't remember your sins. Romans 4.29, he was crucified, given up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Every human being will be resurrected one day. Those who trust in Jesus and come with the empty hands of faith will experience the resurrection that Jesus' empty tomb provides. So admit that you are a sinner just like Adam. Admit that you are a rebel and you, like Adam, have broken God's commandments. And then come with the empty hands of faith and you will experience resurrection just like Jesus as he came out of the empty tomb. You bring the empty hands of faith and Jesus brings the empty tomb. That's how it works. And if you don't trust in Jesus, then you will be resurrected one day too. Your spirit and your body will be reunited, not to live forever with God on the new earth, but to experience eternity in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Every part of your body will hurt for eternity. Every tooth will have a toothache. Every muscle will ache. Migraines will abound. Stomach aches will abound. You fill in the blank on the pain that human beings experience in this life and you magnify it 10 million times and that's life, if you can call it, in hell in a resurrected body. And I don't want that for any of you. And I don't want that for any of your friends or loved ones. And that's why we have the post-it notes on the wall that we started last week so that you can write down the first name of someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus and we can all pray together. I don't want that for any of you here. Hell is death forever and ever and ever. Hell is perversion forever. Let Jesus change all that. Come to the empty tomb today with the empty hands of faith and believe. And then this will be true of you one day. Jesus will look you in the face and say, I love you. You will see him one day. 
Throughout eternity, Jesus will be giving himself to us so that we might know the Father better and be filled with inexpressible joy. God will look us in the face and say, I love you. The Father will put his warm arms and heart around us. That's our God. That's his radiant love, and that is our inheritance forever. Because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great plan in eternity past to save sinners like us. Thank you for Jesus and his perfect life and death and resurrection. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so we just were humbled this morning. May we be astounded anew, Father, that we will be made new one day. And may you get great glory in our lives on that day and until that day. In Jesus' name.